Uh, open your Bibles this morning and follow along as we are in 2 Samuel 9, as Pastor Nathan read just a moment ago. I have a few words to say just by way of preface as we begin this morning, which is firstly that I think it's just cool. Uh, I was studying this particular passage for a couple of weeks, and uh, um, I came up with the title, uh, A Seat at the Table, not really remembering because uh, I guess I just didn't remember, uh, that this particular Sunday uh, would be Communion Sunday, as you might have noticed. Uh, we'll be taking communion at the end of, of the worship service this morning, and so I hope that you're already preparing your hearts for that. But I think it's just uh, really awesome how the Holy Spirit works uh, driving this particular text for this particular Sunday. Uh, as we will see in, in the moments to follow, uh, this chapter has a lot of significance for communion and what we are going to remember during that time. Uh, also, this is the second to the last, I might say. Um, as a sermon before we jump back into our series in the book of Kings. So we've taken a slight pause for a couple of weeks, months really. Uh, we've traversed through the first, all of 1 Kings and the first three chapters of 2 Kings. We're going to dive back into that in a couple of weeks. And I'm really excited for that. But I also think too that uh, all of the, the sermons that we've been through, if you, can, if you want to think back <laughs> into the past Sundays, they really lay the groundwork, I think, for Kings. Which is the fact that all of the Bible is the counsel of God, the revelation of God, the, the truth of God revealed in all facets and in all ways. We've hit and hammered home, I would say, the, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of God and why it is important. Why is it important to preach Second Kings in 2022? Well, because it's a book which uh, reveals what God is doing in our world, yes, even now. Uh, it can show us so many glimpses of the fact that we have a God who oversees every single aspect of our particular moment. You may have noticed, uh, uh, this is another by way of preface, I could say, um, that one of the hallmarks of my preaching is this insistence, and I've said it before and I'll say it again here, that all scripture is pure Christ. If you want to know why I'm so adamant about preaching kings, is the fact that it's showing us, it's driving us to a particular king, a king who was yet to be revealed for hundreds, thousands of years when the book of Kings was written, but namely is to show us uh, the need, our desperation for, our longing for the king of kings. I'm very adamant about the fact that this Bible that you have in front of you or on your phones in your laps is a book about Jesus. That might seem like a very fundamental, elementary sort of statement, but I think it's the most true and the most necessary thing that we can say as the church. The Bible, yeah, it contains directives towards obedience. It contains stories that motivate us for better moral behavior and all those sorts of things. There's all of that kind of stuff all throughout the pages of the Bible. But decidedly, the Bible is not a divine Aesop's fables. It's not a, a collection of stories from which you can read and glean some just moralistic lesson. And that's the end of it. That's not uh, at all what is predominantly going on as you read about Elisha and Elijah and David and the kings and all the characters of the Old Testament with which you are very familiar. Those stories, yes, they show us the moral successes and failures of 
people in bygone eras, those stories by and large pale in comparison to the story that God is aiming to tell in this word, which is to say that this word is his word. It's as we sung about that victory in Jesus, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. As we talked about several weeks ago during Christmas season, this Bible is a revelation, as Zechariah says in Luke chapter 2, of the Lord's Christ. The one who would come, the one who is the glory of the triune God revealed in flesh. That's what this Bible is. It's a story. A story that God tells about how this jewel, this gem of his creation, this pale blue dot as some scientists refer to this earth this world how it was marred by sin ravaged by wickedness and yet how that same creator the one who spoke it into existence with a word purpose to make everything whole again purpose to make it right again by entering into that world as its redeemer A heaven-sent rescuer. That's the Bible in a nutshell. It takes 66 books. 30,000 odd verses. 40 different writers over 1,500 years to tell that story. The story of Jesus and his love. And I pray to my wit's end to always take a stand on that. I was thinking about this sort of passion that the Lord has just given me to preach all scriptures, pure Christ. And I was thinking about this particular quote, and I just think it's kind of funny. Uh, but I wanted to include it in this morning's message, which is just a similar statement from the great preacher over in England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who says similarly, quote, When I cease to preach salvation by faith in Jesus, put me in a lunatic asylum, for you may be sure that my mind is gone. <laughs> and he's saying it tongue-in-cheek, perhaps, but I think he's saying it truly and very passionately. You can read all of Spurgeon's sermons and he finds a way to bring Christ into it. One of the things out of many that I think is necessary in the church today is the preaching that reveals Christ as the revelation of history. The culmination of all of these things is leading us to the cross and we can look back on it and know for sure that there is a king above all of this. He is the subject of it all, as Philippians says in Philippians 2.10. He is the one before whom every knee will bow. Not just some knees, every knee of things in heaven, of things in the earth and things under the earth. As it says in Colossians, he is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is the sum and the substance of our message. Christ is. He is all that we have to offer. And to be sure, these are not just words that I say. They're not just words that I've come up with. I believe this in my bones. All scripture is pure Christ. It's the message that saves. It's the message that heals. It's the message that redeems. It's the message that has the remission of sins. And like Paul, I would say, I have no business preaching if I'm not preaching Christ. As he says to the Corinthians, I am determined not to know anything among you except save for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's stance. That was the church's stance. And I would say, again, we are desperate for that stance in 2022. 
And I say all that as a long-winded preface, perhaps, just to say, spoiler alert, 2 Samuel 9 is about Jesus. It shows us how he redeems people who don't deserve his redemption. It shows us that in a very remarkable, very profound way, ways that I think ought to make us pause and worship and just stand in awe and wonder at this type of God who works through history to reveal himself, the one true redeemer and rescuer. Therefore, to set the scene, I want you to know as you open to 2 Samuel 9 that David has only recently been sort of installed as king. You know, perhaps from Sunday school lessons in years that have been passed, that David was anointed by the prophet Samuel at a very young age to be the next king of God's chosen people. And yet, after that anointing, he basically spends the bulk of his adult life as a fugitive on the run. Always seemingly involved in some sort of conflict, mostly involving then king of Israel, the murderous Saul, who had grown just violently jealous of David and his success and his blessing. It's fascinating to me to think about that very fact, though, of David's life. That, yes, after the anointing of God by the prophet Samuel, he is on the run, running for his life. A fugitive of the very kingdom that God has said you would one day rule. 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter of that particular book, records the scene of the battle of Gilboa. During which both Saul and his son Jonathan, along with Saul's other sons, are killed at the hands of the Philistines. Which paves the way for David to finally, we might say, take the throne. After all of those long and winding ways, all of those times in which he has spent hiding out in caves, hiding for his very life on the run with David and his merry band of men, he finally is taking the throne, which is sort of the story of the first eight odd chapters of Second Samuel. If you read them, you can study them. That's, it's still not without conflict. And indeed, conflict is something that would become very sort of indicative of David's rule. There was always some sort of conflict going on as long as he was on the throne. And the first couple chapters prove that. As he has to squash a number of other uprisings to his kingship. Nevertheless, chapter 9 begins and he is the king. He is the one who is ruling Israel just as God had promised so many years before. But it records for us one of David's very first acts in office as the king. Which, as you would know, is a very important thing for a king to decide upon. What's the first thing he's going to do? What does he want to accomplish first with this newfound power? Well, as we see here, it's not what anyone would have expected. Notice verse 1. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this might not at first be surprising or startling to you this particular statement this declaration from king david but indeed it is it should be because what he is here sort of proposing to do as the king is not just unusual it's not just uncommon it's not just something that's unlikely it's unheard of dare i say unprecedented You see, normally when a new king would come to the throne he's sort of taking power over the guy who was formerly ruling That usually meant that the guy who was formerly ruling gets wiped out. (laughs) 
The new king wipes out the old king's house. He cleans house, so to speak. Thereby eliminating anyone who would try and threaten his power, who would try and take his throne. The new king must solidify his reign. He does that by wiping out the previous guy and his entire family. You can see this throughout history. There's countless examples of this throughout the monarchs of of Europe in the days of the Middle Ages, perhaps. But also, you can even read your Bible for that. Chapters that we've studied in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 15 and 16 come to mind, where the incumbent king is totally destroyed and wrecked by the one who is coming to the throne. Politically, it kind of makes a lot of sense. It's hard to rule an effective, uh, have an effective rule over a kingdom if you're constantly looking over your shoulder, uh, worried about who might try and usurp that throne from you. And yet here, again... What does David announce? He announces something that is entirely counter to what was natural, to what was normal. He says, is there anyone in the house of Saul that is left? Because I want to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Rather than massacre every member of the house of Saul, the house that he has now just overtaken, he intends to show them mercy. The phrase, as is repeated here, kindness, notice verse 1, that I may show him kindness. Verse number 3, that I may show the kindness of God unto him. Verse number 7, and David said unto him, fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. It is a desire of David's heart to show forth the kindness of God in this moment. No less, the kindness of God to the house of Saul. The house of the one who, yes, gave David no small amount of stress. No small amount of disturbance throughout his adult life. The very one he was running from is now the very house that is to be the recipient of David's kindness. Surely, not because of Saul, of course, but because of his relationship with Jonathan. As he says there in verses 1 and 7, it is because of Jonathan that I do this. That is truly something. That story, that story of David and Jonathan's bond and brotherhood, I would say, is something truly to behold. If you examine it in the Old Testament passages. This might sound kind of funny, but they were more than friends. They were literally, I would say, brothers from another mother. If you read Jonathan and David, that's their relationship. More than just comrades, more than just guys who are part of the same kingdom. They were brothers who were bonded by a love, we could say a faithful love, by a kindness that they themselves knew. Yes, even as Jonathan's dad's rage was worsening and intensifying as it targeted David and and sought to bring an end to this David who Saul saw as a threat to his throne and to his power. Jonathan, Saul's very son, is professing his kindness to David. He confesses his loyalties to him. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Which is to say that this kindness which anchored David's and Jonathan's friendship is what now David is here seeking to return in kind. He's 
living up to his word. In fact, turn with me. I'll just read that little passage from 1 Samuel 20. You can see here where Jonathan pleads. He's unsure of what's going to unfold. He doesn't know if his dad is just going to go on a murderous bender or whatnot. But he turns here, Jonathan does, he turns to his beloved friend, the true king of Israel, and says, don't forget your kindness. Notice 1 Samuel 20, verse 12. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil... Then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou wilt, and thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not. But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, and everyone from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it, the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. He's pleading with him. When things break down, <laughs> I'm not sure what tomorrow holds. Uh, he's here conspiring, yes, with David to ensure his safety. And he says, If it goes haywire, don't forget your kindness to my house. Here David is living up to that word. I want to show kindness, he says, to the house of Saul for the sake of my friend and my brother Jonathan. And yet there in doing so, he also, I would say, demonstrates what it looks like for the kindness of God to abound in us. To abound in his people. Notice verse number 2 back in 2 Samuel 9 where as Jonathan makes this declaration, he calls this servant Ziba into his Room into his court. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. He's questioning him about where this supposed son of Saul, grandson of Saul, we could say, is yet residing. And that's what Ziba proceeds to inform him of. Notice verse 3. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. So he informs him of this grandson, who, as we will know and as we will hear in verse number 6, his name doesn't appear till then, is Mephibosheth, which, yes, I had to practice in order to say this morning. <laughs> Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, the son of Jonathan, David's most beloved friend. And he's currently dwelling in this very remote location outside of the kingdom of Israel. Most likely out of fear that he, and his, he would be the next on the shopping block, so to speak. And yet he is lame on both his feet. He's a cripple. You can read about his story in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, where it mentions how he was carried in the arms of his nanny, who suddenly dropped him as they were running and fleeing. And because of that fall, because of that accident, he is crippled on both of his feet, something that he has had to live with for his entire life. 
David, nevertheless, sends for this descendant. He sends for Mephibosheth to be brought before him, verse 5. Then King David sent him and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. He's quickly found this Mephibosheth, this grandson of Saul, and he's brought into the king's court. At which point I am very sure that this grandson, this Mephibosheth, was filled with dread. Imagine hearing the news, opening up your news feed perhaps, seeing, yes, that indeed David did take the throne of Israel. He's just been coronated. And you have made haste for this very remote location because you know you're technically one of the guys who can take the throne. You have the blood right to do so, perhaps. He's filled with dread. Surely this summons to appear before David means my head. This is my death sentence. David surely wants to remove me. He wants to get me out of the picture. He doesn't want me here. He wants me gone. Surely that's what's going to happen. Such is why when Mephibosheth comes before David, notice, notice how submissive he is. Notice how low he puts himself. Verse number six. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. He falls to his knees, prostrate before the king. He's trying to do his best to show utmost respect and honor for the authority that David had. Even calling himself his servant. I belong to you, David, he is there declaring. Perhaps because, indeed, he knew that his life was not his own at that moment. His next breath was in the hands of that king who stood over him. Mephibosheth didn't hold anything over his own life. That all belonged to David. I imagine all of that raging through Mephibosheth's mind. All of those thoughts. I don't deserve anything. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I came. This is suicide. Why did I even do this? He never could have imagined what David was about to say. Notice verse number 7. And David said unto him, Fear not. Words which I would say surely pricked Mephibosheth in the soul. They're words that ought to make us strike up and make the hairs on the back of our heads stand up. Because who else makes these words so definitive, declares them so trustworthily? The Lord, of course, with fear not or do not be afraid, being one of the most repeated promises of Yahweh to his people. Nevertheless, David says, fear not. For I will surely show the, the kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Mephibosheth is given not at all what he deserved. And here David answers every doubt that might be creeping in his mind. Every need that might be arising in his life. He puts to bed his fears. Don't fear. You have no reason to dread in this room, Mephibosheth, David says to him. That's my announcement to you. You have no cause to worry about your life, to fear what I'm about to say next. Because my desire is to show you kindness. 
The kindness of God. And more than just give his word. More than just make a promise that he wants to show him kindness. He outlines exactly what he's going to do for him. He's going to give him back his father's land. And then also he's going to secure the fact that people are going to work it for him. Again, remember, he's a cripple. Look again at verse 7. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Verse number 9. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and all to his house. Thou for, therefore, and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As more Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. (laughs) Amazing turn of events. As the king of Israel, who has everyone at his beck and call here, assures the grandson of the guy that he was running from, will be completely taken care of, protected. Provided for, given a position in his court, no less. Everything will be taken care of for him. With Ziba and company running this estate for him. And more than that, this Mephibosheth will have a seat at the king's table. He doesn't have to grovel as a cripple of a disgraced crown. He is made a part of the king's family. Those words ought to sound in our ears. He is to be regarded as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth is completely undone by this announcement. Notice verse 8. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? What are you doing showing kindness unto me? I'm vile. I'm nothing. Why are you giving me this grace? Indeed, it is an unforeseen and unexpected event. With again, this grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, not getting what he deserved, but getting exactly the opposite. It's indeed grace worked out in front of us. And this grace from David's hand was not just a one-time thing. It was ongoing. Twice we are told in verses 7 and verse 13 that he has this table, this seat at the table continually. In perpetuity, he has a place reserved for him. And more than that, we could say even this, that in verse number 3 and verse number 13, he's referred to again twice as the one who is lame on both his feet, which I think suggests that there was this need for ongoing, unending care and attention. And David says, it's all taken care of. All of that, it's all taken care of. There was no finish line there. There was no end date. There was no expiration date for when this kindness was going to end. 
It had no uh, date set in the future for when it will cease, when this grace that is coming from David's table would stop being shown unto Mephibosheth. Indeed, we could say it was grace upon grace that here this king was showing to him. This grandson of Saul. This story speaks to me in so many ways, and I pray that you are likewise enamored by it. This kindness that David shows to him, but even more so, more than all that. I pray that you see how the story closely mirrors what Jesus has done for you. Because we, I could say, are the Mephibosheths. (laughs) We are the descendants of a line that has suffered an enormous fall from grace. One even further, one even steeper than just this house of Saul. We belong to a house that is by rights doomed to eternal condemnation now that this one true king, the king of Jesus, is on the throne. And we deserve nothing of his mercy, not even the smallest shred of his kindness. And yet, what does the gospel tell us? It tells us that just like Mephibosheth, this king seeks us out. He comes in search of us. He comes to where we are and fetches us from where we are and brings us before his throne. Not to revile us, but to restore us. Not to cut us off, but to show us kindness. We, like Mephibosheth, are brought to this throne and we are stunned. We are stupefied to find that it is not a throne of guilt. It's a throne of grace, as the writer to the Hebrews says. That's what we find here with this king. To me, this entire story is a brilliant foreshadowing of what Christ does for sinners, for us. In fact, turn with me. Keeping the story of Mephibosheth in your mind, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to follow along. As we contemplate those verses, those verses which are so familiar, which very much speak the gospel to us. And they show us how we are the Lord's Mephibosheths who are brought up. As it says in verse number two, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we, have, we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's us. We were the ones whom Christ sought out and found. We were these ones who it talks about that Christ quickened. He made alive. He restored. We are the lame ones, the crippled ones, the ones, as it says, who are caught and dead in trespasses and sins. We belonged to the enemy. As Paul here says, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Our heritage was infinitely worse than just belonging to the house of Saul. We belonged to the house of Satan. As Paul here says, we were children of disobedience. We don't deserve kindness. We don't deserve a second thought. And then, verse 4, the two best words in the Bible. But God. 
Despite all of that, despite all of that being true, how unworthy sinners are, how damned they are because of who they belong to, how they walked according to everything that is against who Christ is and what he stands for, but because of God, because of who he is, because it says he is rich in mercy and because of the great love wherewith he loved us, we are spared. Actually, like Mephibosheth, we are more than spared. We're flooded with an outpouring of God's kindness on us. Notice verse 5. Even when we are dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what he's done. We who don't deserve it, he has purposed to raise us, to make us alive, to give us a seat with him in glory. Yes, to us comes this kindness. To us, we who were the helpless enemies of the king. The crippled descendants of a disgraced line. We are now treated as one of the king's sons. As Paul says in Romans, as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Why? Verse number seven. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. From now to the end of all time. And even beyond that, God is going to be showing us and reminding us and pointing us to the kindness that he has showered us with in Christ Jesus. Age upon age will pass and we will not have so much put a dent in what we can sing about in this kindness of the Lord Jesus. It is this kindness that is continual, much like the kindness showed to Mephibosheth. And yet God's is even more infinite. It is continual. It is unending. It is eternal. It is grace upon grace. Kindness with no limit, no ending point. From now to the end of time, we will be singing this chorus. The riches of God's grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Like this kindness towards Mephibosheth from King David, this is the kindness of God towards us in Christ. This is the gospel. This is what he has done for each and every one of us here in this room. He has seen us as the destitute cripples caught in sin, and he's brought us, and he has given us a seat at his table. Not because of us. Not because we deserved it. We deserved the opposite, not because we earned it. We can't earn anything. This Christ has done this for you. His nail-scarred hands are the very proof that he has ensured your protection, your provision, and your position in him. He has given this to you as a gift. This morning, that's what is offered to you. A gift is handed out to you. And all that's required of you is to repent and believe and accept this offering as your own. 
There's nothing you have to work your way into. There wasn't an extra requirement. There wasn't a little caveat in David's agreement with Mephibosheth that you have to work off this debt. It's not a debt. It's a gift. It's given for free, period. This morning, there's no working. There's no earning. There's no attaining. It is repent and believe. Because the offering is already on the table. Sinner, there is a seat reserved for you at the king's table. Are you a part of this house? (laughs) The house of God. Are you a part of his family? By grace you are saved. By grace you are brought in. Made to be regarded as one of the king's sons. Yes, adopted into the family of God. That's what Christ waits to offer. Let us pray.